Hi, I'm Jerry Grant, and this is a series of programs we're calling Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark, the voice of the University of Delaware. I'll be interviewing some of my fellow VUD jocks to find out what path they took to arrive here at the radio station. We'll discuss their earliest experiences with music and radio and how those experiences inform their own show currently on WVUD. Today's guest is Ron Smith, the host of our popular blues show Red Hot and Blue on Friday nights from 8 until 10 o'clock. Ron, how you doing? Jerry, I've been under these hot lights now for five hours. You kept me in this room <laughs> without food or water. I haven't even been able to go to the bathroom. I'm ready to talk. <laughs> DJ Confidential. I know you got a lot of secrets, Ron. We're going to get them all out of you here tonight. Mm-hmm. We've had we've had a few we've had a few actual secrets actually. But anyway, so how you doing? Not bad. Good, good. Why don't you describe your show for the people? My show is an eclectic mix. No, my show <laughs> is a thrown together on the fly. Um, it's blues. It's blues from the twenties on up to today. Uh, I've got my favorites, but I tried not to repeat them over and over. People can request. I know some people listen in from far and wide. I know what they like. So if I hear from them, I'll throw in some things to keep them happy. But uh, it's um, I try to keep it fresh uh, for a long time. I remember I used to try not to play the same cut for like a year, that kind of thing, early on in the show uh, history. Uh, but now it's, ah, you know, I played this last week, but the hell, it's a cool tune i'll play it again i've been trying to play a lot more live material lately there's a, a lot of it out there readily available and um uh, it's interesting to me uh, it's, it's fresh to me and I'm, i hope it's also fresh to the listeners yeah sure well we'll talk more about the show later on so why don't you tell us uh, mm-hmm. where you were bred and born i was born in pilgrim gardens on warrior road in delco delaware county Spent my formative years there, going to St. Dorothy's every Sunday. Actually went to school there for half a year. Anyway, um, then moved to Delaware when I was like around five and a half or so. And uh, more or less, yeah, grew up as a North Wilmington kid. Absorbed all that had to offer. Was there music in your house when you were growing up? Yes, there was quite a lot of music. My mother had the radio on almost all the time. I have have real distinct memories, early memories, uh, even though I was younger than six hearing whatever the popular music show would have been on the radio back then coming out of Philadelphia. But um, I distinctly remember hearing things like Tennessee Ernie Ford uh, mixed in with whatever, you know, they talk about radio back then being a real like, mix of sounds. There wasn't these right. strict genres. And uh, I just remember hearing all that on all the time. Every, whenever I hear smell fresh laundry being done, ironing being done, it, it all comes back. Uh, yeah. She, um, she didn't really sing much, but she was musical. She had a ukulele. She would bring that out every once in a while. But there were um, there were records, uh, quite a few records, especially when we moved to Delaware. I, I wasn't aware of them until you know a few years later. I thought, what are all these things in this little cabinet here? Oh man, it's a bunch of uh, LPs and um, some forty fives. And what were, were they like? Soundtracks or, or some soundtracks, some, um, and I know Andy Williams was very uh, well represented. Um, mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra, there were some albums of collections. I remember distinctly something, I guess it was a Dixieland record that had a, uh, a fellow with a red and white striped shirt with a straw caps and oh, at, yeah. a, at an uh-huh. upright piano playing. Oh, there was also a Julie London record. I used to bring take that record out and just look at it. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> 
<laughs> I used to do that with South Pacific. Did they have South Pacific? I think we did have South Pacific. I remember distinctly. Although, when did yeah. the Judy Garland, Garland, the big, the double red that you found in Goodwill that we're used to all the time? It was a live <laughs> recording, I guess, from New York. Judy at Carnegie Hall. Oh, at Carnegie Hall. I remember that being in there. Oh, but okay. a, a host of Christmas things in that, like that too. Sure. I sure. also remember now. I don't know where these things came from. I, I, I remember distinctly all these like multicolored. 45s that were either like Walt Disney or I don't know where they all got to, but but there were some um, Burl Ives records in there. And of course, later on in life, realizing who Burl Ives was, I thought, oh, that's that dude. Right, they right. used to play these records with uh, for. I guess I must have had a little 45 player. Well, that's my next question. So did you? Yeah. Have, did, you did? I must have because all those things didn't get played on the living room set, you know, the big. The piece the, of the, the big kids, the piece of furniture, the piece of furniture. I wasn't even allowed in the living room. That's how, you know, you only went in there when they were out of the house. <laughs> no, it was well, all cool. So the Disney records were yellow. They were red, uh, yellow, uh, red. possibly blue. Okay. Uh, well, maybe the Disney's were all yellow, but it, I remember uh, yeah. all of the other colors. But then I think she, her whole family, they grew up. She was a, a, a um, one of six, and whenever there was a party that included like all the. Uh, um, aunts and uncles, they would go down in the basement and just start to rock out to some things, especially, well, the older cousins. I have much older cousins, and they would just mm-hmm. pull out these 45s and uh, make a night of it. And I mean, that was early on. I remember that at huh. the old house. Oh, so before you were six? Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Did anybody play uh, an instrument in the house or? Just that little ukulele. Oh, right, okay. okay. And uh, otherwise, no. We did have a piano later, but nobody played it. Do you remember the first live music you ever heard? I remember be, being dragged to the Mummers once or twice, but uh, oh, oh. that was the uh, extent of it. So you come to Delaware, and uh, you go. Where'd you go to grade school? Started off at St. Mary Magdalene Pike on two hundred two, right? Then went to Falk Road Elementary for um, fifth grade, and then on to Forward Junior High School, which no longer exists, and then graduated mm-hmm. from uh, Concord High School. Was there any music in grade school? I mean, were you taught like singing or playing the recorder or any of that kind of stuff? No. Um, in middle school and at Forward, somehow or another, I wound up in the in the chorus. I think just for a short time. I had a friend that uh, was like really into singing and hanging out with the you know, the music, the singing groups, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll go in there. I remember uh, this uh, teacher saying to me. I think I'm going to move you into the alto section. And I think that might have been my last time there because I just it was like, alto? All right, I can't stay with the tenors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. So that was middle school. So they're still playing the radio in the house. Do you, did you take over the radio? Or what? you remember what you're listening to in Delaware on the radio? Oh, um, it wasn't really until, um, until the Beatles came out that made the big shift right. for me to kind of to, – to, consciously make an effort to listen to things. Otherwise, it was in the background. Sure. And even that took, I had a very, very good friend in uh, grade school, Ernie Lundgren. Ernie, out there? And um, and when the Beatles played, I guess, the first time on Ed Sullivan, I didn't see it. But the next day in school, everybody's, oh, just see, I just see these guys. Rah, 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 rah. And I thought, okay, well, I'll take a listen, see next week. Mm-hmm. And saw them and thought, oh, okay, wow, that's really, that's really exciting. And um, Ernie was taken with them, you know. Uh, sure. He had an older sister, and I think she influenced him a lot in terms of, you know, what was cool. That was my first entry into appreciating music. 
um, and I was like a strict Beatles fan for many years. I really didn't branch out. You know, I bought their records as as they were released. Heard all the other groups, of course, on on radio. And, right. and of course, you know, the British Invasion really did make a huge impact on local radio. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, now they were playing all these these bands, and um, but I, I I didn't really branch out, like I say, until uh, later on to start to listen to um, the other acts. Ernie and I were pals in, in grade school, and then I, then we reconnected later in junior high, and he was much more into the music, but still not heavily. But by high school, he had already got a guitar, and then we were seeing each other much m- more often, even though we were going to separate schools. But again, I think his sister was very influential. Um, you know, he was the first guy to have like some Moby Grape album and a Frank Zappa album and um, mm. Velvet Underground, um, sure. Grateful Dead. I mean, as the years went by, we even talked about putting like a band together. He was playing with some guy. You know, you, when you say you were in a band, you, that means you went over to somebody's house and you sat there and sure. goofed around a little sure. bit. Two people make a band. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I, I got a guitar, just hung out. And you're in high school. We were in high school. Yeah, this would have been uh, when you talk about uh, seeing a live act. I remember seeing. I went over to Brandywine High School, and I think it was. Uh, I think it was the beginning of ninth grade, and there was a uh, nighttime outside performance. Brandywine's built around a courtyard, and this band was playing. I distinctly remember them playing Taxman. And I just thought, wow, these guys are cool. You know, there's all these gals here and everybody's, you know, by then everybody started to be, started to dress very differently and started to let your hair grow. And I think it was around that time I thought, you know, this is, we got to do this. This is what's, what's happening. So by this time you must be listening, you're starting to branch out listening maybe on the radio. That was right at the time or maybe within the next year or two when, when the whole underground radio explosion happened. And up in Philly, it was WDAS, my father's son. Um, I mean, this is '67. Yeah, I th- I think, yeah, I think. Right. Uh, yeah. Also, mm-hmm. listening to a lot of Gene Shea. He he was already on the air by then. So you're getting that whole heavy folk thing from his end, and then the whole eclectic stuff from the other. You know, it was the very beginnings of of uh, you know what turned out to be these huge players, uh, Cream, and, Cream, and, yeah, and psychedelic, uh, or, and, right. And Gene, Gene Shea's on XPN at this time, right? At that or, time, I just okay. remember kind of like falling asleep to it. I think it was Sunday nights. Okay. The funny thing there was, it was always, well, you know, Tom Rush is probably finishing up right now at the second fret. And he'll, he's coming by. So, you know, he'll be here soon. You know, mm-hmm. two hours later. T- I think Tom's on his way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to get a bed here. One of the things that was playing, I think it was coming on DAS, was that there was an afternoon show that started at 5. And it was all blues for an hour. And I remember listening to that thinking, what is this? It was just so different. Um, I had no idea. I didn't even know who Chuck Berry was, essentially, about around that time. Right, right. Um, but listening to that, I thought, man, this is really, really something. And I would come home, I would listen to it. But it, but it, I didn't realize at the time it, its influence on me until later. So I thought I'd throw that out. That yeah. was early. Oh, sure, sure. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it was on DAS, but I'm not certain. Because sure. by then, some of the other, I don't know when, what was DAS's uh, competition early on? They were alone for a while. Yeah, and then MMR, I think, was the first one to okay. to challenge them, I think. I think. Let me just say, I grew up south of Wilmington, and we could hardly get any of those stations at all. Really? Oh, yeah. 
So we used to finally get D-A-S-A-M, which we were happy to get because it was soul music and that's right. what we loved. Right. But um, don't even ask us about D-A-S-F-M. So you're listening to, to some radio, so you're listening to some, you know, psychedelic radio. We're like in 67 pretty much, right? You're, you're 16, are you? Is that, is that why? No. Um, no? What are you then? I'm in 67. I'm um, 14. 14. Okay. I know. I was, I was a young guy. You're young. You are young. You've picked up a guitar? Picked up or, a guitar, um, you know, started to buy different kinds of records. Do you and Ernie start playing? Um, yeah, we start uh, kicking some things around. I was working at Wilmington Dry Goods. This would have been uh, 69 because we were going to, well, we had the, what was known as split sessions. They hadn't finished the school yet, and we were going to Brandywine half day. So a lot of guys got, you know, picked up a job. And I met this guy, Bill O'Connor, who was a couple years older. He really knew how to play guitar. We found a guy who knew how to play drums, or thought we thought he knew how to play drums, and started practicing. And then we got um, we got a gig in 1969. What was that? The church up in Wilmington on 14th. They had uh, coffee houses in the basement. The oh. pastor had a big deal, and it was his idea to get the Utes off the street. Anyway, anyway, so you had a gig. There. We had a gig. Mm-hmm. It was it was a blast. Um, you know, and then we would play some parties here and there. And, and I think we went back. We had a second gig there a year later or so. We 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 were all still in school. I think a lot of bands back then. You know, you you just practiced more than you had gigs. Sure. So we we would uh, do like a weekly thing. We actually had a house uh, that was part of a church off Naaman's Road that we had access to. Um, it was like an old farmhouse that nobody lived in, but we could keep our gear there and uh, just go out and, and, and practice and try to learn some new songs. Now, back then, it was a real eclectic. It was Bill who turned, who really had the focus of Chuck Berry and some of the little older stuff. He actually took lessons. Um, he knows how to play. Sure. And... Um, like I say, up to that time, I really wasn't aware. I mean, you you, you, know, you listen to these records, you thought, oh, well, they wrote that. You know, the Beatles wrote that, the Rolling Stones wrote that. No, they didn't. There's this guy, you know, C. Barry. Yeah, right. Or, or M. Waters. Um, <laughs> but, but that was the uh, that was the deal there. Yeah, sure. Um, you mentioned uh, you worked at Dry Goods. You don't mean Dry Goods Record Department, do you? No. No. No, this was the one on Naaman's Road at Northtown would, Plaza. That would be totally cool. I know. Yeah. <laughs> they did have a record department. Actually, the cool thing there was they had, when they first opened up, they had an insane amount of cutouts, everything in like either white or yellow jackets. No, you know, no cover of the way the things would have been released. Just as generic yellow. LPs? Yeah. Well Cover uh, with a whole cutout so you could see the label, at least know what the hell you were buying. They were 25 cents. Well, that sounds illegal. All right. I know. Yeah. I know. yeah. Mm-hmm. Chess, all the chess records, all the VJ records, <laughs> cutouts. And let me just throw in here the cutouts are cutouts are generally LPs. They, they cut out singles too, but cutouts are LPs that are no, the company's not going to print them anymore. And supposedly they have stacks of them in the, in the warehouse. So they have this machine, which you put the box of records on, in the machine and it cuts off like the corner of the record usually, where sometimes it puts a little hole next to the, the little hole that's already in there. Right. And uh, that's a signal to the, to the, retailers who don't know current from old and aren't really paying attention. That means you should not be paying full price for this record. So and it's, it's, just, it's a, it's an indicator to the public too. Like don't pay eight ninety eight or whatever they're listing these things for, because these things should really be going for three ninety nine or something like that. They're called cutouts. All right. But a lot of the best records are in the cutout section because the record companies sometimes didn't know what they were doing either. And now a lot of budget 
records. Well, now I know what it was. You know, the RPM modern records had all these budget series. Right, right. Eventually that would all springboard international. Springboard international trip. Right, trip, trip records. Right, um, right, But right. all those things were there. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God. It was it was all blues. It was all blues stuff. And by, and by that time I was more aware of, of who these guys were and just started to buy up all that stuff and uh, build up a, a wow, collection. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. We should say that's in the early days of rock and roll and blues and stuff, nobody thought anything was lasting at all. They thought it was worthless stuff. So companies like like uh, Modern and them would go out of business on the West Coast and just the catalog would just kind of float away. Or nobody wanted it or something. So business people would just get it, get the records and press new copies of them. And uh, it's, it's, it's insane that that stuff was just flying around like that. Right. And then Bailey's was still in business down on uh, King Street. Oh, I, I never knew Bailey's. There. No, no. They had like, you could go there and buy a uh, Jimmy Reed BJ record that was still shrink-wrapped but has been sitting there. Well, maybe not. But in other words, it was it was not a new pressing. <laughs> this was the real deal. Oh, there. I see. It was sitting there. You mean since like for five years? You mean or whatever? Well, no, that record came out in 1960. I mean, Jimmy uh-huh. Reed's uh, uh, whatever his first record was. I'm thinking, you know, how long has this been here? Because who was buying Jimmy Reed records through the 60s and 70s? Uh, well, th- that the record shop, you know, was downtown, and it, it uh, focused mostly on like R and B stuff. Right, sure. So the blues was, a, you know, just the kind of uh, little subcategory there, but still it was in stock. But Bailey's was a record store. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. there, there, I bought records one time at like a hair, like a barbershop or something. Oh, really? I bought a Don Covey album there. Yeah, it was just, it was like a rack set up or something. I'm like, well, look at this. So you're in high school and you're in this band. What's the name of your band? Or you have the met- Ron Smith Group. The Ron Smith Group. Yeah. All right. All right. Taking the lead. I was a big fan of Jeff Beck. Oh, right. Okay. Right, right, right. One time Ernie and I, and I think Bill and, and Ernie's sister, we were up in New York, and for some reason uh, we were walking down the street, and I said, if we have a group, we're going to call the Ron Smith Group. And I was so emphatic about it that it, it stuck. Good. Let's just think, I'll, I'll just think here. So you're getting really interested in the blues. Is this, this is all from your own record buying, or, or is there stuff on the radio that might be encouraging you? Uh, I had uh, mail-ordered Two records while I was still in high school, a Lead Belly and a Lightning Hopkins record. And I was really, really into them. I would listen to them all the time. And I remember Ernie saying, uh, oh, man, if these guys were electric, they'd clean up. I said, well, you know, mm-hmm. that's, it's cool what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really branch out that much. But I was, I was getting into uh, a lot of the rehashed stuff I was listening to. I finally then realized, oh, this is what, this is what the Rolling Stones were playing on these records. Even some of the Beatles stuff, you know, it's it's oh, this is this is not their material. This is older acts that that, right. that had these cool records, and and you can find that. Well, you know, of course, back then you could. It was really hard to find them. They weren't on the radio. That blues show had ended. It was tough when the cutouts showed up. That was like a gold mine. So you could find Fleetwood Mac, the early Fleetwood Mac, Savoy Brown. Ten years after, they were covering blues classics. So you would listen to those and then see, right? oh, look, this is a John Lee Hooker tune. So next time you go to wherever, pick up a John Lee Hooker record because you really dig this cut. I'm sure you're going to do yeah, something else. And sure, then you buy sure. your first John Lee Hooker record and go, whoa, I don't need to listen to Subway Brown anymore. Uh, right. I got to find everything this guy's ever put out. Right, and right. And then it just went on from there. You know, then you find out about Elmore James. You find out about Helen Wolf. You find out Little Walter. And you're you're immersed. At least that's how I felt. I mean, it was everybody else moved on to whatever was popular as the years went by, and, mm-hmm. and I was like, I, I dig that. I dig it. Yeah, I might buy a couple of records here and there, but like, you get hooked. 
Yeah, sure. Oh, sure. Tell me about it. I never did ask you what your first record was that you bought with your own money. Do you remember? I think it was Meet the Beatles. We're going back now. Okay, Meet the Beatles. Right. So now somehow you're in Newark in like 70... 74. Okay, right. I moved in with Pete Simon, Mm -hmm. Jeff's brother. He was going to school here. He had been in the Navy, so he was a leader uh, undergrad. Right. And he ran into place over on Phillips Avenue, 396 Phillips Avenue. And uh, I was roommating with him. I was working and also uh, going to school. And um, we eventually thought, you know, we ought to get, find a bigger place. We need a bigger place. We also knew some people that Michael Pennington wanted to move in. So we went over to Chapel Street. We ran over on Chapel Street. And then um, George just kind of, uh, when he came back from uh, um, like you know one of the tours that they did back then decided to move mm-hmm. to Newark. And then then we eventually all teamed up again and, went and got a house together. And that was still before the first album came out, right? I'm, I th- I'm pretty sure. Because I, I know think, the, the record store started in 76. Yeah. I like it like that. So yeah. George brought the album into BJ or, well, or maybe said, I've got the, an album the, coming, right. I think. The record was recorded in 76 and released in 77. Okay. And my own story there, I mean, I wasn't there for this one, but George played in the hallway. At, we were in the mini mall then, the record store, and he decided just to play out in the hallway just like to entertain anybody passing by. And there was these ladies, wonderful ladies that were at the travel agency and all the way in the back of the mini mall. And they, they called management and said, is this guy like asking for spare change? We're like, no, he's got an album out. He's got right. an album. Right. Anyway. So you're in Newark. I'm in Newark because I'm oh. living with... Pete. Right. Pete's here at the radio station, part of the founding group that made it happen from AM to FM. Or Carrier Current. Carrier Current, right. FM, to, right, to, right, to, right. Yeah. To, um, and then uh, FM, and then it was WDRB then, and then it, it took like a year for it to gel to become this uh, WXDR. And he was doing uh, a Saturday night, well, he was doing a lot of nights. Uh, but on Saturday nights, he was doing a reggae, blues, jazz program. He did, an hour, I think, an hour or two or an hour of reggae, then an hour or two of blues, then would go into jazz. So it was, a, it was a block of time. And he was graduating in 77 and um, said to me, he was actually using some of my records. And he said to me, look, when I leave, nobody's going to do this show. Nobody's going to do the blues part of it. You know, I might be able to find somebody to do reggae, but and jazz is covered, but nobody's going to be doing blues. Okay, well, okay, I'll go get my license and uh, and see what I can do. So back then, you know, you had to go to Philly. You had to, between the hours of three and four on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you could go get your radio license examination. And um, it was a hassle. <laughs> it was a hassle. And uh, got it, came down, you know, sat in on some of the meetings. And next thing you know, he's gone. It's sometime early June. You know, nobody's here. And I come down, I do, you know, my first show. But, but aren't we still upstairs? Yeah, we're upstairs. Yeah. And it was either the first or second weekend in June when I started. The third floor of the student center. I'll just right. throw that in. And so, Jerry, that was 41 years ago. And 41 have, and a half. Have you been? 42? Have you been, how long have you been on Friday nights now? Or, well, when we started out, was it Friday Started night? on Saturdays. And, I, mm-hmm. you know, it seemed like I was there forever, but it was probably only like two or three years. I was doing, fr- mm-hmm. I was going from 10 to 3. Into the AM? Yeah. yeah oh, five wow. hours. Wow. Okay. And uh, man, you don't know what it's like until you do go past one o'clock with who's listening out there. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, got shifted to Mondays for a year. 
Sylvia Jean Trappity said, you know, I really want to change the schedule around when she was general manager and said, I want to put you on Mondays. I don't want to get on Mondays. So I was there for a year, and then I guess Friday opened up. I don't, I don't know who was doing Friday evenings. Um, so that would that might have been like 81 or so. Me and Gloria and Don and even Steven, who else has been there over the years? Don has been there the most. That you know, the shows that either were before me or after me. Oh, I see. Okay. Has your show changed over the years? I mean, from when you started? I almost have every playlist um, through the years. And when I go back and look at them, I go, wow, you know, it really has changed. You know, at first I was playing really just the hits, songs that really moved me. Sure. And I thought people would, would uh, be able to relate to, or at least it would grab them the, kind of the same way it grabbed me. And then it would, and I rarely played any newer artists for a long time. And then I would discover them, you know, like years later. Go, oh, here's a guy named Rod Piazzi. He plays harmonica. Oh, he's been out for seven years. You know, oh, these things are great. I think I'll play some. So yeah, I would bring a lot of that into. Um, I don't plan my show, Jerry. I know this is going to come as a surprise to a lot of people oh, that it really is on the fly. <laughs> and. Um, but there are a few hundred records down here and a, uh, a few hundred CDs that are down in our combined locker. And, uh, you know, you pull them out mm-hmm. and you just kind of think, I'm in a groove. This is what's going to play next. This is what's going to play next. Somebody makes a request that kind of can shift you a little bit and maybe you go down that road. Mm-hmm. For a long time, I would play like um, half the show would be acoustic or earlier blues, then kind of move into the more modern. It's, but a lot of the times it's really just it's it's what's clicking in your head. It's like, oh, you know, so it might not have any kind of real continuity. And I mean, I hope it has some kind of relationship, but I don't want to think, you know, throw cold water out there. Did I say water? Mm-hmm. Cold water <laughs> on anyone uh, by shifting gears. But I often think, no, this is this goes together. This is what I would be doing if I was sitting home and, and just pulling random albums that I know. I know this cut and uh, it, it, it works. Sometimes you go down a road and you, it, 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 you know, you crash and burn. But I sometimes you weigh it out. You know, you you have these great heights of creativity and everything's rolling and the songs are right where you want them. And then something goes in there and you can't recover. You yeah. got another twenty minutes left of the show and you're like, oh god, I should have ended it. Yeah, right. That's the curse of of not planning your show. Well, but right. I think sometimes it has more energy if you yeah. do it the other way. Plus, yeah, I I think so too. I think so too. I'm planning my shows more these days, and I don't know if it's that good or not, but now I have to type while I do it. Some of us have to type, you know, while we do it. It's kind of tough. <laughs> anyway, um, all right. Well, anything else you want to say? It's been a blast down here all these years. It's had its up and ups and downs. I realized that within the first five years that sometimes you're just going to go through a dry spell that might last years, but eventually you'll get your groove back on and, and be glad that you're down here. The fact that people listen in and appreciate what I'm doing, what we're all doing, is really, really fabulous. That's the, you know, it's what makes you want to get in the car and drive down here to do the show. Uh, I've always said I'm not doing the show for me. It's all about what I'm trying to put out there to you, the the music, the the artists, the people that sometimes they're they're known. You know, you get your uh, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan that brings it all back. Everybody goes, oh, great, it's the blues, you know. Oh, yeah, that's Muddy Waters. He's doing this song in the arena, blah, 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 but then it falls falls down, and nobody knows anything anymore. And then, I mean, that happened with the Blues Brothers. I mean, it's, it's like cycles. But 
if, if, if it's been continuous here, I know that there's always somebody new that comes along and says, oh, I've never heard this stuff. Man, this is really kind of cool. And it, it still happens. That's what I'm into it for. Sure. It's a... It's back and forth with the audience. Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. right, exactly. The audience. We're educating them. We're presenting something of value out to them, and hopefully right. they'll pick up on it. On that note, I'm going to say, Ron, thanks for coming down. Absolutely. You're All right, welcome. and keep on rocking, and we'll see you later. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD. These shows are part of longer interviews I conducted over the past few years, so some of the times and dates mentioned are not current. I hope to have the complete interviews available as podcasts in the near future. Tune in next Monday at 8.30 a.m. for another edition of Disc Jockey Confidential. I also started to go, I was a year younger than Ernie. He started to go to the electric factory uh, when he turned 16 and um, would come home and talk about these incredible acts. And we should say that's that was like the hip live venue oh, yeah, in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, 22nd and Arch. It was a converted um, tire warehouse. For guitar bands. Or, would you say, or were they limited to that? Or um, Popular music of the day, I mean, it, it really it kind of branched out. I mean, you could have things that were approaching real folky kinds of things, Um uh, mostly what was at the top of the, yeah, what we then would call like rock bands. Um, but um, you could see, now let me think for a second, like Renaissance. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, okay. Pentangle, those kind of things, which I, you know, now you go, oh man, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, were, they weren't rock, but it was, things had really branched out. I mean, everything was under, sure. uh, it was different. It was, um, Right, a, a new scene. Well, and they were also the British invasion, which is yeah, which got, which got you started in the first place, right. and yeah. which was a huge deal influence for yeah, all of us. I think, yeah. yeah, for a lot of different people. You know, yeah. um, and then yeah. it would introduce a lot of us back to things that we should have been Eventually. listening to in the fifties, right? Whatever, right, Eventually. right, right, yeah. right. Um, I, what I was going to say was, I didn't get, I didn't get, I wasn't able to get up there until um, I think I was, I was up up there before I was sixteen, but it took a while. You know, I had to be at least fifteen. And um, and then we'd drive up with um, him and um, whoever else was interested at the time. Uh, those mm-hmm. were saw some great shows there. It wasn't called the Ankh, was it? No, no. that's that's older. That's older. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I should know that. Fourteenth, like Fourteenth in Washington, or uh, it was over or, um, north of Trolley Square. That's not Fourteenth. That's well, yeah, that's what's that area called? That's north of. Well, 40 Acres. 48, so it was in 40 Acres. Oh, in 40 Acres. Yeah. It's a, well, it Catholic a, Church was St. Anne's, but no, no not that. Protestant Church. Right, right. Lutheran, I think. Okay. But the um, the pastor oh. had a big deal, and it was his idea to get the youths off the street. Maybe St. Stephen's or something? No? Okay. Anyway, okay. Okay. But the um, the pastor oh. had a big deal, and it was his idea to get the youths off the street. Cool. All right. So you're buying uh, you're buying the good stuff and uh, and playing it. Are you going out and seeing any local bands at this point? When I mean, you're you're trying yeah. to start your own band, yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. The big band back then was uh, Comfort, uh, which had uh, Gary Watson and um, mm-hmm. um, and a bunch of Claymont dudes, Don DeForest, that were in and out of trouble. All he the went time. to my he went to my grade school. The Don and, and then I really? guess I guess they moved. I think okay. in like fourth or fifth grade he moved or something. Okay. And then I'm just go to this battle of the bands and it's like God, they're Don DeForest. Right. Look at him. You Dave know, anyway, Barry, you know. uh, Ricardo on drums, um, and he was going to school with me at the time. He was younger than I was, but he was their drummer. But they that was the big draw. They would play Arden Guild Hall and some other places, and uh, you'd go there and 
the place would be packed. I must have seen other bands other places. There were, um, there was actually, oh, one of the gigs we did was at um, um, Rockford Park. There was a, you know, trying to be like, remember the B-ins in Philadelphia? Yeah. Uh-huh. I like, mean, I never went, but I, I know. Never went, man. I, I wasn't around then. I wasn't around then. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I know C-Train played at one of them. I was there. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, it was a, a local thing. You know, some of the local bands, I don't know how we got on the bill, uh, uh, but uh, that was, those kind of things would pop up where you could go and, and play with the other bands that way. Okay. Oh, I see. You could uh, you could just jump on. Or, or, somehow, I mean, yeah, I, didn't, I don't know how we got that gig, but uh, but some of the better bands played at this place. I don't know why I'm bringing that up. I just, no, that's I, all right. I always, uh, once in a while, I... Well, that's, I mean, I, that, that indicates the hand-to-mouth nature of the whole thing. I mean, you know, I, we would always, we would play battles. I was in these little soul bands and stuff from south of Wilmington, and we'd play with the bands from up your area, and I always, God, they always had these giant voice of the theater speakers right, and yeah. all this great equipment. And we're like, Oh man, I'm not maintaining at all that, you know, equipment makes the band, but it intimidates the other bands. I will say that. I'll tell you this story. I mean, um, this is, to- this is totally out of character for what, what I am now. Anyway, when we first started out, we were playing all kinds of crazy stuff. We were even, even playing, uh, the Stooges. Well, actually we saw the Stooges at the factory, us and maybe 15 other people. Mm-hmm. And, Ernie really took to them, you know, got the record right away. So we, we had, you know, Want to Be Your Dog or something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. when we first played at uh, Grimslade Coffee House, that's what it was called. Oh, okay. We borrowed every amp we could. So we had a wall of amplifiers. <laughs> Each one of us, you know, guitar, bass, other guitar, had at least three, if not more, amps that we were plugged into. And this, the, the end of the set, the culmination of the, everything after, you know, all the songs was a feedback session and i think it was just me (laughs) (laughs) i was i was up there for what seemed like an eternity the rest of the guys you know walked away in front of that amp and turning the guitar every which way to get some kind of how i mean it was ungodly wow i can't you know now where'd you learn that i mean where did you learn how to do that just just from watching because the the amps automatically did it well right right yeah right right, and so i mean you're you're, you know, and you're, you're off practicing and all of a sudden you realize, hey, I can do this <laughs> <laughs> and control it, you know, and get all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But when you had that kind of multiple, uh, there right. were two rooms at Grimslade. There was the uh, the boiler room, which was the cool room, uh, nice and dark. And, uh, you know, people were really packed in. Or you could play in like the auditorium room, which was cold and open and, and echoey. That's mm-hmm. where we were stuck there. But I, I, I'm going to have to reminisce about that with the other guys and see what they remember from that time. I thought I'd throw that in there because there was a psychedelic time in my life. Well, sure. <laughs> well, I, well, I know that. Well, I know. I mean, we, we both like the animals. Yeah. You and I, we spoke in that. But you stayed with Eric Burden long after I did. I gave up on him, you know, includes Indians too. Oh, God, what a horrible <laughs> record that was. But you stayed with him. And he he got very psychedelic, right? I mean, oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm not really that into that part of it. Except, I mean, <laughs> do you know that I actually play uh, before uh, I do my show at eight o'clock. I'll come down here, and if it's like seven twenty-five or seven thirty, I'll throw in a bunch of animals just in case uh, she was listening. Oh yeah, because I know she doesn't like them. Yeah, she doesn't like them. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, this this is an aside, but right now on Twitter, uh, there's a list being passed around of like the greatest vocalists of all, the hundred greatest vocalists of all time. Oh, so, I heard about it. Supposedly from yeah. Rolling Stone yeah. or something. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Here's this. Robert Plant is number 15. Eric Burden's number 92. Like, get, get out of here! I know. It all depends get on how old here. you are. Yeah, how far up the mm-hmm. list somebody is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 I mean, well, you know. I'm going to be started. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's an insane list. They just ought to divide the list in the first place. I mean, Dylan's like number five. You have to... Can't even hold a tune. You have to... <laughs> right, I know. You have to separate the, the people interpreting their own stuff from the from the people that have some, you know, some natural gifts. Right. You know, I mean, you know, that have typical vibrato and range and all kinds right. of stuff and, and timing, right? Yeah, right. God, yeah. There was, uh, talking about lists, I remember uh, back in the day, uh, this would have been like 66 or 67 there was some list, I don't know, if it was Playboy or, or whatever it was, you know, a best harmonica player, Bob Dylan. Like, now you listen to it, you go, he just blows three notes. You know, back then, look at who you would have, who was alive then. Little Walder was still putting out records. Yeah, All these right. guys that, that you know, the, the symphonic sounds. Oh, well, yeah, well, we got to get right. Bob Dylan on it. You know, he's the best harmonica player. Only because that's all the people that that group knew. You just have a silly, these charts are silly. All right. Yeah. There was just ten minutes. We're just going to cut out. All right, uh, but we're hardy. We're, we're well. Let's talk about. Let's talk some more. A couple more of the bands you were in. All right, just just to get it on the record. All right. Um, the Ron Smith Group's original singer was a cat named um, Jimmy Nelms, uh, who's still around. I think he's out in California, but he's very <laughs> very unpredictable. The band kind of floundered a little bit. We were still practicing, doing some stuff here and there, and then one day. Um, a friend of mine from high school called up and said, have you got an amplifier I can borrow? And I said, yeah, sure, come on over. Comes over to my house. He's got another guy with him. And we go back in my bedroom. We're grabbing the amplifier. And the guy says, are you into this music? You know, the records are laying out. Yeah. I said, uh-huh. yeah, I'm really into it. Huh. So they leave. They take the records or the, the, um, the amplifier. Mm-hmm. Next day, there's a knock on the door. It's the friend. says, Hey, I'd like to listen to some of those records. I said, okay. Comes in and listens to records back the next day. He's back the next day. Well, that was George Thurgood. And um, he had already started to collect these sounds and um, developed a, a friendship. And um, he was already like singing. I had seen him sing like three years earlier in a band on New Year's Eve, just came out of nowhere, came up and sang a song with the band and then and left. But he always had this charisma. But I didn't really know know him. Um, I mean, I knew him when he came to the door with with uh, Bob, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't expect him to come back like the next day and say, "Hey, you know, what's what's uh, I want to listen to your stuff." But then we uh, we didn't have a singer and um, said, "Why don't you come on out and um, you know come to some of our rehearsals and see if you want to uh, you know sing?" Mm-hmm. And he did. And then we got a couple gigs after that. Um, but he he really didn't want to be in a band. His whole thing back then was he wanted to be kind of like the next John Hammond, a, um, just a soloist that played right. guitar and harmonica, rock harmonica. Lonesome George. Yeah. Right. right. And, um, but we had, um, I mean, we really had some good times with, with the band at that point in time. And, uh, and then George and I were really trying to also get deeper and deeper into um, finding out more about the records and more about the bands and then trying to go out and actually see some of the acts too that were still coming around. Right. So there was that band. Okay. Then later, that was still the Ron Smith. Group? That was still the Ron Smith group. And okay. Then later, George took off to find fame and fortune on his own. Hitchhiked out to California. You know, we stayed in touch, you know, postcards and things like that. And um, 
and then he said he was on his way back. I had always told him though that he he had to have a band. It, you know that John Hammond already had his career. You know, just right. You got to have a band. John Hammond Jr. We're talking right. about right, right. So he comes back from um, California and says, "I met some people out there. I got a connection. Um, let's go see John Hammond." It was yeah. in New York, the big time place in New York for a while. And while we went up there. We met some people up there, and then they said, you should go to Boston. Said to George, if you want to make it, you know, go up to Boston, contact these people, they'll get you a gig. So he did. He went up there and got a gig and then just um, just hung around. He uh, met some people and was able to crash at the, a, a recording studio that was being built. Just picking up gigs here and there. Calls me up and says, yeah, you got to come up here to check this thing. Uh, what's going on up here? I had just uh, started work for – I had been a job for a year and finally got my week's vacation you know, uh, in the late spring of 73, went up to Boston and Howlin' Wolf was playing for a week at a place called Joe's Place. So George plays and I twist his arm and I say, look, we got to start a band. You can't be doing this. There's nothing going down. And uh, so we come home. I quit my job and um, and we start practicing and trying to find a drummer. And uh, one guy comes to mind. It's one of George's childhood friends, Pete Simon who spent a lot of time here at WVD. Sure. And I didn't know those guys had a history, so they, <laughs> they, they there were sparks between them. Uh, I okay. guess it was way, way back to childhood or whatever. They just uh, pushed each other's buttons. That kind of fell apart, but then I don't know what happened. I guess somebody thought, George probably just thought, well, you know, doesn't doesn't uh, Pete's younger brother Jeff play drums? Like, I guess, you know. So let's see if he can, you know, put this together. He comes out, it's perfect. And we spent that whole summer uh, practicing down over in Jeff's basement. Even better. Uh-huh. Even better, you can practice in his house. Right. And um, and then it went from there. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for telling that story. All okay. right. All right. I love that story. I love imagining you guys. I love imagining Wolf. This, this thing coming down the road, you know, this presence, this solitary presence getting right. closer and closer. And then, of course, getting bigger and bigger <laughs> as he gets closer. <laughs> it's Alan Wolf. Uh, and he kind of talks like he sings, right? Yeah, right. yeah, right, right, right. Very low. I I sat next to him one night in the in the back room, and uh, the the, the uh, dressing room was like uh, divided into two spaces. Uh, one was kind of public. Uh, I mean, you know, you could mill about, but then there was a door that went into where you could actually change. You know, it was more private. So sometimes the guys would just hang out in the outer room, um, and. Like I say, after a while, we got to know some of them. But really hadn't tried to enter the inner sanctum yet. This might have been like the second night. Mm-hmm. And I just remember uh, it was um, um, uh, Speed Leary goes, go on in. Go on in. Go on in. Go ahead. Don't be, it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> and go in. You know, we'll off to the side. There's a couple other band members in there. And uh, there was a bench. I sat down on the bench. You know, what am I going to do? What are you know, hey, Mr. Wolf. Um, comes over and he sits down next to me. And leans over and goes, I like baseball. <laughs> and then starts talking about the Chicago White Sox to me. And then, of course, I'm just nodding like, oh, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the extent of it. He was not in good health. He was, he was going through dialysis right, on right. A, like a daily basis. And uh, it, it really showed. It, 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 when he was performing, it took like a while for him to get up to speed. And then by the end of the night, he was like you know, really into it. But then. At the end of the night, you could tell he was spent. Well, yeah, it was funny. It, it, we saw them over a course of five nights. And so, 
it, it, you know, he seemed to have some energy. Like the next night, he'd be really low. Yeah, right. And then the next day, he'd be like, whoa, you know, full throttle. Right. And then after that, it'd be a little low. And he'd realize, oh, so he's going, he's getting these treatments that are. Yeah. My, my background, yes, was heavily influenced by the records, by being in a band that actually played places with people that, um, you know, that we were idols of. And also just breaking that music out there. You know, a lot of the places we played, nobody had heard any of these songs. Right. Yeah, they might have heard some of the Chuck Berry songs, but they didn't hear any of the um, Jimmy Reed or Sky's Crying. Right, or Elmore James. And it was right. all fresh and it, and it was right. delivered with no pretense. Of course, one of the great sayings was, you know, where's your lights? <laughs> where's your sound man? Where's your lights? Like lights, sound man. <laughs> you know, here's the sure vocal master, man. You know, we're setting this up on either side of us on a stage. You know, like a stone balloon kind of thing where you're supposed to come in with, you know, playing the top 40 and right. really have a stage show. And we were coming in having shaved or bathed in a day or two because these jobs were 400 miles apart. And sometimes you'd show up like 20 minutes late and, and whoever's in the bar would help you bring all this stuff in and then be amazed by what they heard. They're like, whoa, whoa what is this? George had some energy. It still does. Went up to Boston. And Howlin' Wolf was playing for a week at a place called Joe's Place. Was this was this the time you met them? Yes. Like, yeah. oh, would you please tell that story just for me? Oh man! Oh, um, come on! Oh, I, right. I know okay. you're you're rolling right. You're rolling. You want to finish? <laughs> no, we'll no, finish no, it's, your, a good, uh, it's a great story. Okay, no. sure. Okay, all right. So again, we're just kind of hanging on the street. Nobody, you know, you just waifs. Is that the right word? There's yeah, waifs sure. Hanging mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. and uh, George had hung out at this club and had talk them into like sometimes opening up for acts. So he knew the management. Mm-hmm. And so we go over there. It's like four o'clock in the afternoon. And Joe's place was in Cambridge. It was outside of Boston. And um, just a storefront bar, you know, like a double side, double wide. And um, the manager was there. I don't know why we even went there. Door was locked. And I guess we wanted to get there to be there when the band showed up. Mm-hmm. So, because you knew Wolf was playing, yeah, he yeah, was right. coming in that night. He was right. going to play that night. Mm-hmm. So uh, the manager, somehow, you know, the manager comes outside and we start talking to him. And one thing the manager says is, you know, when this guy shows, do I say Mr. Wolf? Do I say Howlin'? Do I? And we're looking at him like, what? 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 <laughs> you, know, what? you don't know who Howlin' Wolf is? What? The? No, this guy <laughs> didn't know. You know, he was just managing this joint. Right. Right. So, like mm-hmm. I say, we're we're just kind of standing. It was cold. We we're standing there on the sidewalk, and I'm looking down the end of the block, like far down the end of the block, and I see this solitary figure walking towards us. He had a long coat on, hat. This guy's going on and on about it. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? How am I going to? This guy's getting closer and closer, and then he's like maybe you know fifty feet away, and I go, "That's Alan Wolf." Howlin' Wolf is walking right towards us alone. What the, what is that all about? And he's a big man. He's six foot three. Uh, He wasn't Mm -hmm. in the best of health then, so he wasn't his full 300 pounds, but he was a presence to be dealt with. Comes walking up and goes, (laughs) I forget the exact words. Goes right to like the manager goes, you know, is this the place? Is this where we come in? You know, like, oh, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's here. here." And of course, George and my, me and my, our mouths are hanging open like, my God, we're in the presence. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't even realize it. We kind of look like look across the street, and here's this station wagon pulling a, a the smallest U-Haul you can rent, except that instead of it saying U-Haul, it has written on, it's been painted, and it says the Howlin' Wolf Band. <laughs> and here's the five guys in the band unloading this this little trailer, 
and the station wagon. We jump right in, you know, like, hey, let me help you. Let me help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, I just, you know, they come in, they roll their stuff in. It's just another gig. And uh, I, I remember we're just, we're, I'm, we're sitting at the bar just watching this happen, you know, unfold. Like, oh, my God, there's nobody else in the bar except for the people that work there. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, there's Hubert Sumlin. I'm, I'm 10 feet away from Hubert Sumlin. And he might come over and say something like, how are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. But right. we actually got to mix with those guys after the after uh, the, you know, that night and then the following nights they realized you know we were okay um it was okay to talk and and uh cats on the road they want to talk you know and, and of course you know that they weren't headlining some stadium somewhere they they you were a regular guy they were a regular guy right 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 and uh, I, I came across this not too long ago an envelope that had the signatures of all the guys in the band and some of the guys put their phone numbers and their address wow. on there. Wow. Like, hey, man, you know, if you're in Chicago, give me a call. I'll stop by. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know. I, I, when I came across it, I thought, holy, I remember this, but I didn't know, you know, it's lasted now. That was 73. I can still talk about remembering place. I remember driving with my friend BJ up uh, Academy Street, and he said, oh, last night I went, uh, I saw this band playing down here, George Thurgood band, and I, I said, "Oh, how were they?" He goes, oh, "They were, they were good. They did all Chuck Berry." I said, "Really?" And then we're driving some more. I said, oh, "So what did they do? Like, what songs did they do?" He said, uh, "No particular, no particular place to go." And uh, O'Carroll and um, and he keeps naming them. I'm like, "You really mean they did all Chuck Berry?" <laughs> right. He said, "Yeah, right. they do." I thought it was a figure of speech. <laughs> right. You know, no, doing the song anyway. Hey, here's another gig. We played the Sulky, which was a uh, topless bar. On Lancaster Avenue, right, and uh, George negotiated with the guy. He said, "Look, I got the, you know, I got some guys would like to play here." The guy said, "Okay, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you forty bucks." And George says, "How about forty-five? There's three of us." The guy goes, "I gotta pay the girls." <laughs> uh, tell about that. You're right. So tell about the gig then. Tell about the gig. <laughs> We're up on this platform. It's got to be at least three feet up off the ground, maybe even four, to a U-shaped bar that's like right in front of us. To maybe three or four people. Who are only there to watch the girls? Sure, right? sure. You know, drinking their shot and a beer really <clears throat> slow. Right. We're up there kicking with some Chuck Berry <laughs> or some Elmore James. The girls come over and they say, "You know, you can't dance to this." That's <laughs> 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 like that's all we know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then one of the boyfriends, you know, this biker guy sitting next to us, in a, you know, in a table. One of his girlfriends, one of the dancers, comes mm-hmm. over and goes, "You guys know." Uh, Born to be, you guys do okay. born to be well. George looks down and goes, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, my only story like that, I remember George saying they played it, they played it a prison someplace. I yes, it was we played up in, like no, that. it was in Massachusetts, right outside okay. of, of Boston. Mm-hmm. Bring us, yes, we played to a women's prison. Mm-hmm. And was that on the bill with uh, we were actually doing some jobs with Jonathan Richmond? Wow! Yeah, and with Mo Tucker at that point in time, she had her own band. She was the you know drummer for the Velvet Underground, right? And right. we were the opening act for a couple of these uh, these events, and uh, so it was a woman's prison. They get to see whatever, and then uh, oh oh oh, that time it it wasn't Jonathan Richmond. It was Appeal, the guy from New York. Um, um, friend of John Lennon's, 
Oh, John Peel or David Peel? Oh, David Peel. David Peel and the East Village other yes. something like that. Yes. Oh, and okay. he had a song called "The Pope Smokes Dope." Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, so he does his thing. He or maybe we did ours first because he was the uh, the, the headliner. But maybe mm-hmm. we did come on after. I forget. Anyway, we're playing our hearts out to like twenty women who are sitting at tables, <laughs> not breaking a smile. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. and these were some rough babes. Sure. And at the very end, somebody was on the microphone, comes up and goes, well, you know, that's the end of the show. Um, anything else you'd like to, you know, say or hear or whatever? And uh, the biggest, toughest woman goes, bring us the Pope, what smokes the dope? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. I, I thought it was going to be the one that ended with, Young Money Al Green, you know, I, I, George said that was one. That, oh, that, that okay. Young Money Al Green. Like, uh, no, I'm sorry, we don't know any Al Green. My sister wanted us to do bread. She goes, says, "You don't even do. Do you like do any bread songs? They're really good." <laughs> no, we don't. All right. <laughs> and so, when and then I, I left the there, band and I came here. Right, and I'll say, and you can see Ron's picture on the back of the first album, right? Your picture's on the back. Mm, isn't no. It? No, no, it's oh, not on shoot. that record. It was it was the publicity file. I remember that really clearly. It was in the yeah, newspaper. That, that actually was shot when I was not in the band. That was shot by David Garr, uh, who's oh yeah, you know, he a, did move it on over cover. I think okay, I think. But I mean, yeah. he's you yeah. know he, at the time he was the guy. Yeah, that people went to the album cover photographer, right? Um, uh, I was up in the, uh, I was with the guy that I don't know. We went up to New York. I don't know, why was I even there? I don't know. Um, because I was still hanging. Every once in a while, I would hang with the band when I was out of the band. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they went up there specifically for this publicity sh- shoot. And I mean, he took us. We were outside. We were inside. We were all over. He must have taken hundreds of pictures. Um, I would like to see some of them. And then finally, he takes one. Um, and, and like George says, yeah, get in the picture. Get in the picture. So I'm in there. So yeah, that was the publicity picture for a long time early on. Yeah, yeah. But no, I'm... Um, I'm not okay. present on that. No. But your name is My on My name's there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and did okay. you know this? That they re-released that record two years ago or a year ago? And um, the whoever engineered it said, you know what I want to do? I want to take the original recordings and uh, clean them up a little bit and release them, not the ones that had been overdubbed. So Bill Blau's not on that record, on the one that was just released a couple years ago. Oh. It's just the three of us. So they, they took the bass off. Yeah. I mean, it had been overdubbed in the first place? Well, it, uh, a year later. Okay. A year later, but before it was released. Yes. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Okay. Yeah. Originally, see. it was just George, Jeff, and I. Right. And I, then uh, Bill came in and uh, overdubbed about, about a year later. Right. And then it was released. Because you played like a rhythm guitar. Yeah, I played like a rhythm guitar, but just or like real heavy on the bass end. Right, right. Um, and uh, similar to what Hound Dog Taylor was doing. Right, right, right. Um, but not intentionally us doing it that way. It was just, that's how it fell together. 